and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about eagle eye and detective vision mechanics, those abilities in games that allow you to tune out everything else and just see what's important. To help me discuss this topic as a man who would glow bright yellow in my detective vision, it's my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? I'm well. Actually, I've been told my aura is more of a, a golden color than a, than a yellow. Absolutely. As someone who definitely has detective vision, I can, I can confirm you are absolutely glowing golden every time I see you. Thanks, buddy. I feel like when I wrote this, I, it was like clear in my mind that this would imply that you're important to me, but I don't, know if that, I don't know if that came through, but you're important to me, Jared. Wow. That's a, you're important to me. It's a lot to unpack right now. I appreciate that, Stephen. I love you, man. <laughs> that sets the tone for this podcast. It does. It does. Jared? Yes. Eagle Eye and Detective Vision. It could be, it could be a pretty uh, dense topic, but you know what? We have an amazing guest to talk about Eagle Eye and Detective Vision with. She's the managing editor at Feminist Frequency and the host of Queer Tropes. Please welcome to the show, Carolyn Pettit. Carolyn, Hi. welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks so much. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm very good. I'm thrilled to be here and excited to dig into this uh, exciting topic with both of you. It's truly an honor to have you here. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Feminist Frequency and the work that you all do over there. So this is a, this is a real treat for me. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us on the show. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, it's, it's my pleasure. Now, for our listeners who might not be familiar, um, what is Feminist Frequency, if you were to pitch it to someone? Yeah, so Feminist Frequency is a nonprofit organization that uh, creates primarily like YouTube videos, but you know other content as well that critically examines depictions of women in uh, video games and other media. Uh, certainly, our biggest impact and our the, the the thing we've got the most notoriety, you might say, for is our work uh, focusing on on video games um, and unpacking kind of the his the history of patterns or tropes of limiting and sometimes sexist or misogynistic ways in which women have been sort of pigeonholed and just constantly used uh, throughout much of video game history. The team over there, you put together really great products. I think I've mentioned on this show before, there's the old series Tropes vs. Women in Games, which has actually been a, a big influence on the way that I approach some of the topics that we discuss on this show. When did you start working on Feminist Frequency? Like, how, how did you how did you get involved with the team over there? Sure, sure. So I previously I was I was an editor at a at GameSpot, you know, one of the sort of old guard of video game websites. I was like a critic and writer and editor there. And a Kickstarter was launched for that very series that you mentioned, Tropes versus Women in Video Games. And you know, as as uh, a trans woman working in that space, I was keenly aware of like the need to bring more feminist analysis to video games. And so I. Um, I reached out to uh, Anita Sarkeesian, the the founder and uh, you know and like the host of of that series, and uh, I interviewed her about about it, and we posted a story on Gamespot about it, and that was like our first you know uh, connection with each other, and um, and then uh, as you know they uh, uh, as she and uh, um, collaborators kept kind of working on scripts and um, and edit, doing cuts of videos, they would kind of run them by me, ask me for just feedback, you know, um, did I have like an, any any good exam good ideas for specific examples or any insight into a, a better way to frame this or to express this concept or what have you. And, you know, eventually GameSpot did some major, major quote unquote restructuring. They let go of me and a bunch of other folks, you know, and kind of one thing at that point led to another. And Anita brought me on full time 
to kind of uh, collaborate with her on the trope scripts as well as do other kind of communicative and editorial and writing things for Feminist Frequency as an organization. What is your role as a managing editor there? I've worn a lot of hats over the history of, you know, my time with Feminist Frequency, certainly from um, doing a lot of work on scripts like the like the Tropes versus Women in Video Game series. Uh, a lot of, you know, research, of course, goes in goes into that. I've run uh, social media uh, fundraising campaigns for the organization. I've handled just kind of internal like email communications between our organization and other like organizations. Um, uh, you know, I've just I've I've written like um, you know think pieces for lack of a better term uh, on on our website feministfrequency.com about various topics that I've been interested in about games that I've played or you know just different things that I've wanted to write about um, over time and a, a lot of different things really kind of come with that uh, with that uh, title and that responsibility. Do you have a favorite part of working with Feminist Frequency? Yeah, I mean, certainly like video games remain remain my passion. So, you know, anytime that I get to like dig into video game history, maybe to explore something that I haven't really explored too much before for purposes of a project that we're working on is something that I find really interesting and rewarding. And also we have our own weekly podcast called Feminist Frequency Radio, where each week typically we'll... we'll focus on a, like a, a new film or TV series or, you know, some topic that's that's kind of in the in the pop culture conversation at the moment. And that's just really fun, like kind of icing on the cake, a fun thing to do to get to, you know, each week talk about, oh, um, you know, the new John Wick movie or the new, you know, Avengers or whatever it is we're talking about on any given week with Anita and our um, our other um, our colleague Ebony. Now. As as I mentioned, I, I was a big fan of tropes versus women in games, and uh, when I heard that there was going to be the queer trope series, it was for me. It was like finding out that your favorite show has like a new season. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I was I was I was really excited for the series. How, how did this series come about? Well, you know, I think it was an idea that Anita had had in the back of her mind for a while. She saw, well, there's a need here also to kind of talk about some of these issues, the ways in which I mean. It's very different from approaching women in video games more broadly, right? Because women are, like, everywhere in video games. They're just usually, you know, I mean, by usually, I mean, like, historically speaking, they've mm -hmm. usually been pigeonholed into, like, the damsel in distress is so, like, if you really, once you become aware of it, and if you start going back and playing, like, old platformers, old arcade games, old, mm -hmm. you know, shooters, uh, what you know, third-person action games, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you will see the damsel in distress just, like, everywhere. It is mm. inescapable. So, uh, whereas with queer representation, it's a whole different ballgame because part of the problem is, like, well, there just hasn't been enough of it, period. Yeah, and it's just the lack to, of representation. Yeah, and it's difficult to show or talk about something when it, what you're trying, when what, the, you're talking about is that it doesn't exist rather than having like, oh, here's a bajillion examples of mm -hmm. what does exist, but it's really fucked up. Um, so, but um, we did, you know, identify like, you know, kind of a few areas where we could look at and say, okay, you know, here are ways in which gay and trans people have been like really demonized uh, and just used as punchlines and, uh, you know, throughout video game history. So, you know, we did, we did a video about that. 
we did a video about representations specifically of like queer relationships where thankfully we were able to have some some more positive examples you know especially from recent years with games like dream daddy i don't know if you're familiar with dream daddy but oh, like, yeah. oh yeah i know about dream Daddy. okay okay great so there are like you know more games lately that are that, that like are actually showing like healthy and like positive you know uh, representations of of, of queer relationships and and in a way that players of all stripes and backgrounds can enjoy provided they're not like hateful bigots who just like you know can't deal with uh any stories about like gay people or what have you but yeah so, th so that was you Good know thing there's topic. no one in the and, gaming community like that right right right, oh, right. yeah yeah you know so it was more about we had to we had to kind of narrow our focus right to finding like specific mm -hmm slices like topics that we that we found okay there is actually enough material here for us to like talk about and deal with and um and then we actually paired with um there's an organization called the lgbtq video game archive that has already done like a, a ton of research about this so and you can actually go to their website at lgbtqgamearchive.com and just kind of search and find like a host of interesting examples of queer representation throughout game history so we worked with them a little bit. I kind of co-wrote some of the scripts with, uh, or all three scripts actually, with a young man named Christopher Persaud, who is involved with the archive. So it was helpful having having like his expertise as somebody who, who in an academic context has been focused on this stuff already for a while, you know, but also certainly I was able to bring plenty of examples just from my own recollection and memory of having played video games throughout my life, you know, like... um. In one of the videos, we mentioned um, this game called Police Quest Open Season, which was a game where you play an LAPD cop. It was a Sierra point-and-click adventure game. And, you know, the killer that you're hunting throughout the whole game turns out to be this, what the game, I think, calls a quote-unquote transvestite. But, like, they're obviously presented as just, like, deeply mentally ill and, like, really... It, the, the way that the game pathologizes genderqueer or trans identity is so just really gross and horrifying. And you end up killing this char the character in just the most pain gratuitous, painful, like brutal, unnecessary, unnecessary, like horrifying Sierra, what are you way. Doing? What were you doing? And, then? um, this is the one. This yeah. is the one with the. This is the one with the canister and the lighter. Is this? What yeah. Oh, exactly. brutal. Yeah, yeah. So you, as a cop, like you, you get like a can of hairspray or whatever and a lighter, and you, you know, you, you burn the person to death. And then the game is like the narrator literally after you do this basically says, "The assailant has been neutralized," and it's like you know <laughs> you just like killed a you just burned a person to a crisp with oh a God. lighter and a can of hairspray. And then it goes on to like say how you get this like commendation or whatever, and it's like it's sick, you know, it's yeah. sick. But it was so totally considered normal uh, at the time, and so you know. Anyway, so being able to bring those like dark memories from my past back into the limelight a bit was there was something kind of cathartic about that. Like, okay, I finally get to like have some kind of platform to say. Yeah. Look at how fucked up this is. You know what? <laughs> me, when I was a, a, a kid who already, you know, knew I was uh, trans, but, you know, I encountered this and stuff like it in video games, how that shit made me feel like, you know, fuck you. <laughs> so, and yeah. Jared, it, it, sound, it sounds like they do real research with academics over there, not just the Wikipedia research I do for this show. Well, that's why we bring time. academics onto our show. <laughs> the, the real, to like fill, the real half-assed research I do. A very wide gap. Oh, yeah. The, 
glaringly enormous gaps in our in our knowledge. <laughs> That's what uh, our guests are here for. But exactly. Yeah. So, so Carolyn, um, yeah. there's there's three episodes available now. Are there plans yeah. for more in the future? Uh, n- no. I mean, you know, we we it was definitely designed as a as not a another like full fledged project like the like tropes versus women in video games partially due to like just budget you know reasons mm-hmm. partially due to what as i said like there's just not as much material to work with um you know having said that like i wouldn't rule anything out you know it's certainly possible that we will revisit it in some form at some point but it, it's not um that's not part of the 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 design or or the plan um at this time well, yeah. like like I said, I I am a big fan, and and thank you for making those the videos and putting them together and putting them out there for everyone because they are they are very well researched, very well put together, and uh, and very thank fair you. in their criticism of so much of the video game history that we we all share. We will make sure and post a link to Queer Tropes, and I'll also probably um, relink the uh, Tropes vs. Women in Games as well, just because yeah. that's a series that's been um, yeah so influential on, on my work let's let's jump into our conversation let's talk a little bit about yeah. eagle eagle eye and detective vision jared why don't yes. you why don't you give us a little history lesson on, on where all this stuff started well uh there's a little series that definitely is not problematic in any way and no controversy nope. surrounding this series at all <laughs> it's a joke bad joke uh, metal gear for the msx2 and came metal out metal 19- gear metal gear what behind <laughs> d a hindy <laughs> can we just do that for the rest of the episode i could just like <laughs> just just metal just metal gear love references even on a battlefield <laughs> a surveillance camera <laughs> <laughs> the original metal gear before metal yeah. gear solid it was designed by hideo kojima in case anyone out there is not aware of that by now it was developed and published by konami for the pc and released the same year for the nes is it did it come out in europe for the famicom at the same time it came out for the nes um, I don't know. Oh, everything I found just said it, it just basically came out in 1987, but originally for the PC. Sure. And one of the things that we did come across is that Kojima was not happy with the port to the NES. Apparently, a lot yeah, of uh, so like, compromises right. were made for that, which is interesting because yeah. I don't. I've only played the version that came with some. I don't even remember what they called it. It was, it was like, like the compilation subsistence? Metal Gear Solid thing for the PS3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it might, maybe it was Subsistence, or I don't know. It was like one of those. Yeah, yeah I'm curious what version the... I played because obviously it was. A port of a port of a port somewhere but um yeah yeah so anyways they the original metal gear had um solid snake in it and one of his tools was the infrared goggles which allowed you to see lasers and stuff that would trigger alarms uh, that's about as close as we could find to like the origin one of the first games that had like a detective vision i think i think i will i'll probably bring up something uh, as we try to define eagle eye vision and detective vision in games that that may have preceded this, but I don't know if it, I don't know if it counts. So I'll I'll save I'll save that for later. But Carolyn, you have you have experience playing Metal Gear. Do you do you remember this mechanic in the game? You know I I, I don't like I mean I, I I played the NES version, um, but I have to say like that is that is ancient history at this point. Like I I don't really recall specifically the impact of any infrared goggles on the experience. Like I can't I can't honestly say that I remember that you know that part of the game so um yeah like i wish i could i wish i had something to say about that but i really don't i think well i i think that your experience is probably the same as everyone else's experience in that i I get the impression that the goggles weren't that important to the game i think there was only 
a handful of times that it was used and it wasn't even really necessary in those parts. So it's sort of this yeah. like, like totally optional thing. I think a lot of people didn't even, I, I think you could play the game without even knowing that you had to put the goggles on is my impression. Right. I, I suspect that you're right about that. Yeah. <laughs> there may have been like a few, maybe like laser, like a few rooms with like laser barriers or something where to see the pattern and know when to go to like avoid them, you had to wear the goggles, but I honestly don't recall. Well, what else we got? What else we got, Jared? What's next? In 1998, for the Nintendo 64, we got Legend of Zelda, The Ocarina of Time. That was developed by Miyamoto, published by Nintendo. And that game had something similar to Metal Gear's thermal goggles. In Ocarina of Time, they had the lens of truth. And when you equip that, you could see hidden objects and secret passages. And I absolutely played the shit out of that game. And I don't remember that at all. I do. I mean, I remember loving games where any where any you could do anything that would sort of reveal like a difference between what you were seeing and what was like quote unquote real. Yeah. So like this is this is a, a this is obviously not strictly speaking Detective Vision, but it's another game from that same period that that somehow for for me like I falls under this same category more broadly, which is like. Legacy of Kane's Soul Reaver. Yes, was a I, was, game where you, I was just thinking about that game. Yeah, I couldn't remember the name you, of it. Where you would like phase between, it was essentially like you were phasing between dimensions, right? But like, I remember you would go into one dimension and maybe you'd be able to, you know, in one dimension, maybe like uh, an archway would be blocked or something, you know, and then you'd go into the other dimension or whatever it was called. And then you'd be, and there you'd be able to proceed. Yeah, and you'd get and like then, clues you know, for puzzles too, I think. Yeah. I always, I just love that stuff. It's so funny that you bring that up because I was thinking of, what was the name of the game? Shadow Man, I think it was Shadow called? Man. I never played Shadow Man, but I rem- I'm, you know, I, I remember it. I've never heard of that. What's Shadow Man? Sh- it was, so that one was like, um, you, it, it was like heavily influenced by voodoo, I think, was yeah. the, the, where they were like the cultural, the, the culture they were drawing a lot of influence from. But during the daytime, you had a gun and you were just like a, a human. But then at nighttime, everything changed like all your weapons changed to these like demonic weapons and uh your character had special abilities at nighttime and right as you were starting to talk about legacy of kane that instantly jumped to my mind as like these these other worlds that are revealed by you know by simple mechanics in this i case, really want night, a, a remake of like legacy of kane now because i completely forgot about that game and hey remake them all remake shadow man why not let's do it how, who do we got to talk to? Who do we got to who do we got to mail checks to to get these old games remade? <laughs> <laughs> this this might actually be a good time since we're already kind of uh, veering off the path a little bit. Yeah, like, I'm like, how are you how are you going to like define this? Because I don't yes, know if how I would, do, I would how consider the Metal Gear thing really Detective Vision almost. But yeah, I'll, well, I'll throw it to Carolyn first. Like yeah. as as we try to like rein this this definition back into what we do consider like Eagle Eye or Detective Vision. Like what what first jumps to your mind? For me, it's the Arkham games. You know, I mean, not to say that, that you know, Batman Arkham uh, Asylum was the first to introduce uh, a system like this. It, it wasn't. Like, it was it was preceded, I, I think, brought by, you know, like, Assassin's Creed games may have had this in, in them to some degree or another. But, like, just on a, like, if you say to me, Detective Vision or, you know, Eagle Vision even, like, that's just, in terms of, a game where it that was just so core to my experience of it and where like 
you know, when I, if I played a bunch of Tomb Raider, then and I'd go around in the world and like every apartment balcony looked like something I could jump up mm-hmm. to. Or, oh, you know, if I played too much Grand Theft Auto, every car on the street, like part, I would sort of oh, imagine yeah. like. I, so I, I play Assassin's Creed and I go, parkour doesn't look that hard. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, you know, there was almost something about Batman Arkham Asylum where when I would stop playing the game and move around in the real world, some part of my brain would be like imagining my environment in, in detective vision. Because, where did I, where did I leave those keys? Oh man, what I wouldn't give for that, you know? <laughs> um, it was essential really for, to help you manage a lot of, I mean, maybe not essential, like I'm sure super high level players, probably, you know, maybe like to challenge themselves by handling those encounters without detective vision and whatnot. But like, you know, is kind of built into the game as an essential way to manage those combat encounters, to be aware of where your enemies were. But what I loved about it is that as beneficial as it was, um, and it was extremely beneficial, it didn't mean that it didn't like do the work for you of actually like dealing with the enemies. You know, it didn't like it wasn't like autopilot. It's still like you still had to. Mm-hmm face the enemies and often you know you could still kind of fuck up and get yourself into situations where you were overwhelmed and or defeated and so to me it was just like a great balance of like it makes me feel you know batman obviously is meant to feel very skilled very powerful he's super rich he's meant to have all these gadgets and you know technological advantages and whatnot but you also want to feel like i'm still the one who is is uh carrying out the physical prowess and the combat to overcome this situation i I think the reason that the batman arkham style of the eagle eye or detective vision is what springs to most people's minds when we talk about this topic because it's certainly what comes to my mind first and jared i'm going to assume it it's the first thing that springs to your mind as well yeah i think i play i don't know what that game actually looked like because i only had detective vision on all Uh the time i think so I, i think the reason that it it sort of clicks as the like the first of the modern examples of this is because it just worked so well on almost every level of that game, right? Like Batman games in the past have done such a good job of giving you the sense that like Batman can punch a dude in the face better than anybody else. But the things that the other games I felt have lacked for so long was making you feel like the detective side of Batman. And that's where the vision I think really came in and connected with people is it is it was, I mean, it was still sort of in service of, you know, like the best way to punch someone in the face. <laughs> like what, what's sure. the best, what's the best time to punch someone in the face. But it, it like really, it fit and it made you feel like the character. And I think that that's why it was so successful and why it, it sort of spawned this whole new set of games that have a similar mechanic in them where it, or it may or may yeah. not, may or may not fit as we'll discuss. What are the mechanics, Carolyn, that, that, often define eagle or detective vision in games for you yeah i mean it's it's uh enemy enemies are you know highlighted as are like often uh, uh, things in the environment that you that either you can interact with or that maybe will uh provide cover for you like say in the and this is where you know it's it often starts to feel kind of gamey for me is say in the certain assassin's creed games it may like highlight oh here's uh, some tall grass or whatever, and if you go into the tall grass, you're like, nobody can see you, mm. guaranteed. And it's like, uh, you know, it just feels a little too, I don't know, I'm trying to even figure out what my own feelings about this are, like why it's okay in certain circumstances mm-hmm. and not okay in others, and it's hard. It's a little hard to define, but 
like I, there should be other factors involved, like like proximity. Like if a guard is kind of close to the tall grass, like going into the tall grass shouldn't just magically, mm-hmm. you know, be camouflage or something like that. Like sometimes it just feels like, oh, the world is is too much of a uh, too exploitable in some way, I mm-hmm. guess. In a lot of ways, and maybe this is. Uh, you know, will help in our definition as well. It it compartmentalizes a lot of the world. It makes it, it right. It sort of lays bare all of the individual systems in the game a lot of times. So you know, oftentimes uh, this detective vision will be something that's activated at a button prompt, and it changes the way your character or you see the world. But yes, it really does. It like it it breaks it down to like these are the important things and literally the only important things. And oftentimes everything else is like grayed out or blacked out to where you can't even uh, even really see it or or you know care about it. Detective Vision was so popular and so influential from the Arkham games. Like obviously at a certain point, it started to. I think a lot of us feel anyway that it started to become either overused or or just not used in ways mm-hmm. that were necessarily in the service of like creating the best possible experience when it reduces the world that you're in which should kind of feel like this living breathing organic thing to some degree when it reduces it to just like a very straightforward series of if this then that kind of functions it 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 starts to like take it starts to take something away from the experience from the the immersion i guess you know yeah because it's hard to it's hard to feel like you're like you're not just uh yeah like manipulating these gameplay systems for your advantage in a way that doesn't really feel um authentic i guess now jared is there anything that you wanted to add to this definition before i get into my like weird tangent on our definition no i i i do appreciate that it seems like all three of us sort of independently came to the agreement that like Arkham Asylum was sort of a turning point for this as we talk about it in a modern sense because I, I just feel like that game you know it, it made sense in that game and then after that we started to see it in almost every other game that was coming out you know what this makes me think of is when the Matrix came out and then we had Max Payne after that. And Max Payne incorporated that like slow motion bullet time. Oh yeah. And then it, and then there were a bunch of games that came out after that that tried it as well. And I don't think any of them were nearly as successful as sort of Max Payne was. At least at using that as like a core mechanic for their gameplay. And I think we've seen that that kind of went like, oh, every game should have bullet time in it, and it like rose, rose, rose. And now we don't really see it at all yeah. ever. I I, I don't. I'm trying to think of like the last game that I played that had bullet time well, in Red it. Red Dead Redemption. Maybe. Sure. Um, yeah. In a different like like yeah. it's definitely an evolution or an iteration, but but you can absolutely I think sort of trace it back to I mean I would say that it's a there's a lineage there to mm-hmm. bullet time. Yeah. And, and my my whole point with this is that I I think we might be seeing sort of a similar thing with this detective vision where I I feel like maybe we're on the downslope or I don't know. I guess I guess yeah, when you're yeah. when you're in the yeah. moment it it certainly feels like you're it's hard to tell where you are on that graph, but it feels like we're at the point where things are kind of calming down a little bit with, uh, you know, having detective vision and everything. But, but okay, so so here's the other part that I that I'm going to throw in, and maybe it will, um, you know, change how we sort of consider our uh, our history of of detective vision. So one of the things that I think that Eagle Eye and Detective Vision do for video games is that they insert a level of fidelity that doesn't exist in the game. Or they, I'm trying to think of a good way to say this, video games are we're, we're so limited by 
the technology available for the visual display of a video game, but we're also limited in that we have to play a video game on a computer screen or on a television screen, and there's a certain distance that a person has to the world that they're interacting with. And something like Detective Vision or Eagle Eye Vision, I think, allows the developers to put subtle things in the game, but make them very visible, very readable yeah. to the to the player. Um, so, and this this will have absolutely no bearing on our conversation. I probably shouldn't even bring it up, but I, I was thinking of like a, a game like Zork. Did you ever play Zork, Carolyn? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, forever ago, but yeah, yeah. yeah the text adventures where you could say mm-hmm. look around and it would tell exactly. you like. Yeah, yeah. Here's the important stuff in your exactly. surroundings. Exactly. That's yeah. what the, that's what Detective Vision makes me think of is like those old text adventures where you'd pick up you'd pick up an item and then you'd inspect the item, mm-hmm. and it's because like again the technology at the time was limited on what you could display to like to investigate the world. It had to have these sort of like expanding um, I don't know what to call it, like tiers of definition of uh, you know like. Yep you'd see the the macro world and then you get into like the micro definitions of things all through text and that to me that's what detective vision kind of feels like today in a way i would agree with that mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I- wow i the <laughs> fact that i uh, the fact that i was able to like effectively communicate that is a big step for me <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like there's definitely a lot of issues with the the eagle eye and detective vision and when i was doing research for this topic a lot of the sentiment that i had seen online also seemed to echo this but before we go down um i guess the the negative rabbit hole which is maybe my favorite rabbit hole to go down. yeah it's my it's my favorite rabbit hole to go down on this show but before we do that let's talk about some positive examples so carolyn when you're thinking yeah. about when you think about eagle eye and detective vision what what stands out as like maybe the best case of this mechanic being used in a game Boy, I mean, The Witcher 3 is a game that I, you know, for instance, that I absolutely loved. And there are times in The Witcher 3 where you have to you have to use. I don't remember if they actually called it like Witcher Vision or or anything like that. But like Geralt is kind of um, part of his part of the role of being a, a Witcher is being like a detective. It's being like an investigator. There's a lot of kind of crime forensic work almost in those games where you might find a body and then you have to follow the tracks and it's it's you know you you'll or the scent of of something or whatever it might be and you'll you know you'll toggle something or whatever and you'll you'll see the the footsteps or the 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 sort of scent cloud and you you know you follow that and and it's like I really like that on a, on one hand because yes like Geralt has these skills like for him they are almost at this point kind of second nature they're built into who he is to what makes him a witcher so as the player filling his shoes i want to be able to experience that i want to understand okay this is something that a gift or a skill that he has honed so yes of course i can do this and i can see okay the tracks went this way let us follow the tracks i think that's great but maybe especially in in the later Arkham games like Arkham Arkham City or Arkham Knight, you know, as Batman too, you're you investigate crime scenes. Like you you mm. actually do the detective work in the in in the more, you know, straightforward sense of figuring out, okay, the trajectory of this bullet or, you know, the thumb the the fingerprints and who they belong to and all this stuff. But oftentimes like I just feel like these games go a little too far and they end up doing all the work all the work for you mm-hmm. like so it's just like 
hold X to scan this or follow this. And then, you know, as Geralt, press whatever button to investigate this next clue and then follow the tracks. And it's like, I really want there to be a balance of sorts where the game gives me some information or like, you know, because of the character's skills, whether it's Batman's or Geralt's or whoever it may be, but also asks of me, the player, to do some measure of like actual kind of deducting or problems, you know, solving or something so that it's not just like this automated system where it's just this rote thing of me going and like holding buttons and following very clear pathways from one spot to the next. And I don't think games very often nailed that sort of sweet spot between you know, making you feel empowered by the character's skills, but also really involving you as the player in that process. And um, I just wish that 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 there had been more of that, I guess. To me, the eagle eye and detective vision is something that instantly feels empowering when it's in, you know, included in a game, right? Like it, it, it's very easy for it to make you feel powerful, like, oh, I can see the important things and I can de I can detect where the, the enemies are. But yeah, that that balance that you're talking about, I and and I, I as you're talking, Carolyn, I've started to think about the the reason why perhaps in Arkham Asylum the mechanic feels so at home, and in Arkham Knights it, it starts to feel like maybe it's doing too much of the heavy lifting. Is I think that there's you know Arkham Asylum was a much more linear kind of game. It was a much more enclosed space. So. Um, there is something that happens when the mechanic is used in an open world game. And I'm thinking about something like uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, which is a game where I, the um, um, Aloy's uh, special seeing ability, I forget what it was called in that. Every game has a different name for it, which yeah. is why it's like so hard to discuss this. <laughs> but, you know, the, the detective vision in Horizon Zero Dawn, in that game, it highlighted the enemy's walk paths. And to me, that like really started to make the open world of that game feel artificial like it said like here's this big open world but these are the, only the important parts of the world that you need to pay attention to on this on this dinosaur yeah path. and it all it also limits like it also kind of reduces my sense of of enemies in that world a as threats but also b as like actual entities mm -hmm. in their own right because it's like showing you the ai routine it's like this is exactly yeah. what this uh, you know, robotic dinosaur or whatever is going mm -hmm. to do. Which, the, you know, it just it's just like, why? Like, I, I mean, it, I want to at least believe that this creature can act of its own accord to some degree and won't just follow this. I mean, I understand for stealth games, like I understand that that maybe we as the players need to watch them and, and determine what their patterns are so that we can safely approach a situation. But yeah, when it goes to the level of here, it's showing you exactly what the enemy is going to do. Something is... It is lost. It just makes it just it just lays things too bare, you know. Yeah. It just yeah. And in Horizon Zero Dawn specifically, I can understand the thematic reason for that, right? Like, oh, it's a, it's a robot dinosaur, and this is mm -hmm. its pre-programmed path that it walks. Mm -hmm. And and so from like a thematic standpoint, I I totally buy into it. I'm cool with that. But I I think I've said it on this show before. But if if I haven't, I'm going to say it again. I think Horizon Zero Dawn would have functioned so much better if it was just a linear game and not an open world game. And I think as we're discussing uh, the detective vision in this in this episode, I think I'm honing in on why maybe that's my feeling is because it was a game that basically told you these are the only important areas. The rest of the open world almost is ignorable for the most part. So why not just have that game be a uh, 
yeah you know be be more linear than it was it, rather than trying to give the illusion of an open world yeah zero dawn came out almost you know or right around the same time as breath of the wild and i was playing both of them a lot around the same time and that's not easy to do yeah it's not and and like i really you know there was a lot that i liked about zero dawn there really was but um it, it was like that it was frustrating is that is that the world was in many ways so beautiful, you know, so richly mm-hmm. detailed. There oh, were yeah. things done to make it, to try to make it feel alive. But then, you know, but then it's like the game undercuts it, its its own efforts to make that world feel alive through the, the way that the detective vision functions. Whereas, you know, Breath of the Wild, I, you know, I think succeeded in it by not having really something like that and just by in a number of ways through the ai behavior and a number of other things in in making its world feel more you know more reactive and alive and and immersive now jared i've inexplicably i've slipped into the the negative rabbit hole yeah are there any positive examples of Eagle Eye Detective Vision that spring to your mind? Arkham Asylum really was one of the time where I was like, I really enjoy this mechanic and it makes sense. And then all the games after that that came out that had it, that mechanic just seemed very forgettable in most instances. I can't really think of too many times where I was like, that was that was fun to do. Even in the Witcher series, I was like, okay, I've done this a bunch and it's just kind of, here's a clue, follow the path, and then there's the guy to kill at the end or the the beast to kill. But does it feel forgettable? Because to me, it doesn't feel forgettable. It feels like in a lot of games, the the only way that I play the game. You know what I mean? Like like Red Dead Redemption sure. 2, most of the time, I was like mashing the Hunter Vision. What? what gosh, all these games have different names <laughs> for it. I know. The, I, I hesitate to call it the Detective Vision because it's not really Detective your, your Vision. Your Cowboy Powers. Yeah, Cowboy Powers. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, so I don't know I'm, if this counts. But I'm going to call like... it Buckaroo Vision from now on. Your Buckaroo <laughs> Vision. vision. <laughs> um, um, what about the, the Solitz on Radar in Metal Gear Solid? Does that count? Oh, that's, I mean, not really. I, I mean, I, I that was like a central part of that game. Like it was on un, oh, yeah. almost unplayable without it because of the the forced yeah. perspective. But uh, I, you know, I, I I like that. So that's... I think it's. I think you're right. Like I loved. Oh man, I mean that that navigating around enemy vision cones and stuff was. I mean, even as absurd and contrived as it is, like oh, these are the genome super soldiers and they can't see like past like ten feet in front of their faces or whatever. <laughs> like it was part of what made that game playable and exciting. It made you feel like good at stealth. You're like, yeah, I'm awesome. Yeah, I'm exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like oh, I have, of course I'm a super you know stealth operative. Um, I would definitely put that in the in the, like in the lineage at least of Detective mm-hmm. Vision. I, you know, I, obviously it's a lot of the same functions in terms of the information that it communicates to you as the player i would say that i enjoy it when it is justified within the world if you're batman of course you're a detective and you're looking for clues same thing with Geralt. for the good examples i, I would say that the games that that make a good justification for it, a good get good case yeah. for it, i i don't well, mind it but it's not mm. something that I, I look fondly back on and be like yeah that game was good that, that game had really good detective vision well see this is the thing is i feel like in pretty much all cases i would argue that it is at least justified uh in, in most of the cases it's used in now i i liked the the use of the the eagle eye in the rebooted tomb raider series that they have going on now see i love those games and i don't really remember anything special about it it's weird like i guess at that point maybe it was just already so rote you know or so just mm-hmm. kind of expected in right. those kinds of games that it's difficult for me to even recall what 
how that was implemented in the game like <laughs> maybe i mean maybe that's to maybe that's to the game's benefit maybe it is <laughs> yeah yeah it's, the 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 thing i liked in tomb raider is that again and and maybe this is because of how sort of linear the world of tomb raider is that it it didn't feel like so much of a crutch but it did give the impression of a person who lives in these worlds and has these abilities. And, and this is and this is why I think it's it's such an alluring concept in game design is because the character that we play as is supposed to be sort of this like in in most game. I'm not going to say this is true for all games, but in a lot of games especially where it's like these power fantasy games, this character is supposed to be more powerful, more, you know, more intelligent, more perceptive than the person playing the game. So for so much of video game history, we've done a very good job of of making them like the best person at punching other people in the face. Yeah. But this, yeah. but this mechanic of the detective vision is like, okay, how do we, how do we represent the other senses that, that a character has? And, you know, Tomb Raider is debatable, like, especially the first one in the reboots where she's still, you know, she's like learning the trade of being a, 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 a Tomb Raider. A Tomb Raider, <laughs> a, sur a survivor. So went to school but for. Also, but do, you, do you have to go to college to be a Tomb Raider? I don't know. <laughs> but you know, it, it is tapping into that aspect of empowerment of like how do you know how do we represent the other senses, the other things that makes this character exceptional. In that case, I I like the idea of Eagle Vision or Detective Vision or whatever we're calling it at the Buckaroo Vision. But I don't know when it steps over that line. To being negative or when it's when it you know detracts from the game so i didn't get very far into assassin's creed origins but do they ever explain like why he just has a bird that he can use as like a scout i just i like i feel like they didn't and I, i'm okay with it but it was just funny they're like i don't know you, you can you have an eagle that you can see through well those games get away with murder because it's like a game about being inside of a video game like so often the rules of, of game design get ignored because you're playing a character inside of the animus this is true for portal also which is part of the reason that you know i love portal so much is it's like making fun of the mechanics but portal gets away with with murder like how do you do a tutorial level in portal oh you just have your character go through a tutorial because they're playing a game you know what i mean <laughs> should we should we jump now with both feet into the uh into the the negative implementations <laughs> of this <laughs> I'm ready. All right, all right, Carolyn, if, if you're ready, I'll let, I'll let you go first. What games like really missed the mark in your mind implementing Detective Vision? Oh boy. A big part of I think why the Assassin's Creed series just lost me at a certain point really was like because I just felt like oh each game is trying so much to create this sense of we're in this beautiful historical setting, you know, like so much research, so much authenticity. And I want to, like, be in that world, and I want to, like, experience it in some ways and, like, soak it in and everything. But even with the conceit of the animus, mm -hmm. like, the idea that, that whatever character I'm playing as can almost always achieve this outrageous level of awareness of their surroundings to the point where, you know, they, they know that there's enemies through walls, like, two rooms ahead of where they are right now or, you know, whatever... It was absolutely like one of those situations where I felt it is undermining the, the things that I come to this game looking for, or ho at least hoping for. The implementation of this vision, this feature where, okay, I know I can go to, you know, here and, and hide, you know, perfectly or whatever. It, it just, it just made everything feel very 
reduced down to basics that um whereas whereas i wanted to feel like the world itself was a little less concretely defined you know mm. in it's some a very sense. gamey game mechanic yeah it yeah, is. yeah yeah and it sounds like what you're what you're touching on is that it, it's like shortcutting a lot of what used to be very subtle in game design, and and this is just kind of what I'm right. picking up on. So like, and please feel free to correct me if I'm if I'm on the wrong trail here. But I think about a game like Doom 2016, which is often praised for its level design. It uses this mechanic of highlighting the main path using green lights throughout the game, and it's this like very subtle thing that if you didn't think about it, or, you know, weren't concentrated on it, you wouldn't even really notice. But when you see it pointed out, it becomes this very obvious thing. You're like, oh, yeah, they really did use sort of color language to communicate what the preferred path through the game is. And something like Detective Vision in a lot of these cases, I feel like I, I don't know if it's necessarily a shortcut to that kind of design and that, that kind of communication. Yeah. But, but it certainly feels like it can like it can step into that boundary of like we didn't want like. I have a hard time saying this because I feel like I'm generalizing a lot of different games. Well, a lot well of shortcut I think is a good word. I was thinking like it's almost like a crutch. But yeah, I mean, it, it in a lot of cases it starts to feel like that, right? Like it it's uh, it, it feels like I don't know. Again, like I, I feel like as yeah, I'm I saying mean, this, the right. implication the implication is that I'm saying like the devs were lazy, and that's not what I'm saying at all. No, because because this stuff is all very difficult, and finding this balance is difficult. And I and, like I appreciate yeah. the the you know th those difficulties but it, it does feel like it's 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 saying like we're, we're not going to invest in this kind of design this sort of like subtle hand holding that's going to direct you on this path instead it's right. going to be this like this other kind of of way to communicate this information to you and it becomes like sort of like it oversteps that boundary to becoming very um gamey very recognizable yeah. as a gamey mechanic I mean, I think another relevant example here is how you know say uncharted games will use I don't orange or red or like a certain color in the environment to kind of make things like pop out at you like oh this is something that you can like grab onto or what have you and yeah like if you notice it like once you become aware like oh the game that's like what the game is doing maybe it seems a little artificial but also like it's super helpful and necessary even to just give you that experience of of like noticing what's crucial and and being able to progress through through the game and can be a lot more like elegant and effective in a way and, and without pulling you out of the immersion so jared what what games stick out in your mind as as maybe missing the mark on the way that they implement eagle eye or detective vision i, I would say most of them to be honest it's just it, all games like, just like every I said, game that like, has I, it <laughs> I, I so often feel like it's a crutch but sometimes you know it's a necessary crutch and as we as we get better at figuring out what works for players as far as like directing their attention and showing like you said like the the green lights and doom are, are awesome because it's even if you're not completely aware of it like subtly that's that's how you know where you're going but there's such a push for realism and and better graphics and more detail that we've relied on it so heavily because otherwise it would just blend in with all the other things in the environment so i think it's a crutch for art design i think it's a crutch for for level design in a lot of ways because we just don't have a whole lot of better ways to do it. I think of something like VR and how that's going to be implemented in, in VR games because you don't get to choose where the player is looking ever in VR, right? So you have to find other subtle ways to help direct vision so you can they don't miss important things that are happening, plot points or clues or whatever it may be. 
Um, and I think that's sort of a similar discussion. I'm playing through Days Gone right now, and they do justify it in the game, but so much of the game missions are go to the place, look for the clue on the ground, follow the footsteps to the location. And without detective vision, like you'd never be able to see that just because there's so much like there's leaves, there's there's blood, like all this other stuff that would just get lost in it. And it's like I if they didn't have that type of mission in the game, like find the clue, that would be hours of the game that they just didn't have anymore. Beyond the things that we've already sort of discussed, I was wondering, is this born from the same seed that mini maps were born from, where it's like we don't want the player to to miss a thing? We've put this little detail in here and we don't want the player to miss. We're afraid that if, you know, players miss this thing, they'll feel shortchanged on the game. Do, do we think that this mechanic is maybe born from some of that fear from a like the development or design side as well? I mean, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that the mechanic is necessarily born from that, because I do think that at least in a lot of the initial uses like, you know, again, Batman, like it, it. It made perfect sense. It was implemented well. It it was empowering, but fit the character and the universe. It's interesting how things become just accepted as like good game design, period, right? Like mm-hmm. like maybe the ability to quest waypoints, for instance. Like, oh, okay, your next objective is here. Go here. Like, I remember, uh, I forget if it was Bloodborne or, I, I don't know, Dark Souls 3, but there was this kind of hilarious tweet. Here I I I modernized Bloodborne like I uh, this is what it should be like you know given modern game design and it had like waypoints and all these like all the HUD was just like <laughs> filled with like information and everything and it's like <laughs> you don't fucking understand what Bloodborne is if you think that that's like how <laughs> Bloodborne like Bloodborne shouldn't be like every other game or like it's the fact that those things aren't there that is part of what makes it so captivating. And I do think that a lot of developers don't always ask themselves, you know, what they should say is, okay, this is a feature or a system that can be definitely beneficial in some context, in some games, etc. Like, is it something that is going to benefit our game specifically or not? Or, or, or to what extent? Like, maybe we can, maybe we implement it in like a limited way where you use it in certain contexts, but not like you can't overuse it mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. But especially among, you know, the places like you, like Ubisoft that kind of have these franchises that they churn out every year and where you see the, the shared DNA across all, you know, mm-hmm. the, the towers and like the, the maps with all the activities and the waypoints and everything is that things get just kind of accepted as quote unquote, good modern game design. Like, like if you, if you're designing a good modern game, it has, features x y and z and kind of detective vision to some extent almost kind of fell under that umbrella for a while Mm -hmm. rather than maybe developers asking themselves on a case-by-case basis like is this something that is actually going to be in the service of the specific experience we are trying to create with this specific game that is definitely a concept that comes up a lot on this show is is this in the game because it really truly benefits the gameplay or is it just because that's how games are made now and right. I, I think that question sometimes doesn't get asked enough while in development or, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I think players should also question that is like, yeah. do I need this in every game? And, and I would say that more often than not these days, no, I think we can get a little bit more creative with that. Yeah, exactly. And I understand maybe part of the part of the reason why maybe this stuff appears in so many games. Maybe it's not so much the developers thinking like this is just good game design now, or this is going to benefit our game. But maybe some of it is thinking like, 
oh shit, if we don't have this in our game, players are going to be upset and angry and players are going to be like, why the fuck can't I do this in your game? And like, I understand that fear or that concern and obviously having to deal with the wrath of angry gamers because you didn't include a specific feature that they want, even if you didn't include it because it just wasn't compatible with the vision that you had for the game or whatever reason. I get that that's not fun and may not, you know, and maybe isn't good business. (sighs) I I don't think this issue is simple, is cut and dry. Like, I'm very Mm -hmm. sympathetic to people who feel, for whatever reason, like they have to or should include things in games that maybe they don't really necessarily feel like belong but there's also the level which we yeah we have to talk about the games as the games that they are Mm -hmm. and what works and what doesn't well think about the other spectrum of this you don't want the the player to be frustrated right and like think back to games like the old scum engine games and everything like lucas arts and like how how frustrating it was to like pixel hunt and like you're like what am i supposed to even click on here like the the mist series some of those early games is like i have no idea where this pixel is that that you want me to click on or or, you know you just start clicking all over the place at some point and that's frustrating too so yeah you got to find some kind of balance because yeah like i said with all the detail and fidelity we have in graphics now it can be kind of hard to see what's important I want to jump in here because I think from a developer standpoint, Eagle and Detective Vision is that it's an optional mechanic, right? Like you don't you don't have to engage with the system if you don't if you don't want to. And and I don't Sometimes. know about I don't know about either of you. Well, yeah, I, you know, for the for the most part, I'm speaking in generalizations here, but for the most part, like when I play a game like Red Dead Redemption, I spent so much of my time in Eagle Vision that it's like distracting. But but mm-hmm. I don't have to. And that's like that's part of like the the weird problem that I have with these systems is that I destroy my own enjoyment of the game by over um, over interacting with the system. And I could see that being frustrating from a developer standpoint, right? Like, look, we gave you a tool that allows you to see things more clearly. Um, you know, we allowed you to see the animals in the world more clearly with the buckaroo vision in, in Red Dead Redemption. Um, but we didn't, you know, we we didn't design it with the intent that you would just use it all the time, nor do you have to use it all the time. And then I feel like bad as a gamer, like I'm playing the game wrong. Well, because like, how do you create the sense it is okay to miss something? Because I know it, you're not alone in that that feeling. A lot of people do overuse it, but it's because it's like, man, if I miss something, then I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm losing value in some way. So how as a developer do you create uh, an experience where it's okay to not see everything that was put into the game? That seems like a very difficult line to walk, right? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I I don't know that there is a good answer because, again, it's just like a tool in the player's toolbox. And at least from my own experience, I tend to overuse it to the point that I don't really enjoy it or that it like hinders my experience with the game. Yeah, but I mean, I, I do feel like if devs, if a developer feels they want to discourage overuse of it, then they need to figure out Ideally, anyway, they need to figure out ways to build things into the game to discourage overuse of it. This might be a good time to do this, but Carolyn, what? How can how can the game industry improve on the way that it implements eagle eye and detective vision in games? Like, what what can they do better in the future to make it feel like a more rewarding experience to engage with those mechanics in games? I really think it, it's something that looking at each game as an individual case, at, you know, in the early stages of, say, development or concept or whatever, asking the devs, asking themselves and having a lot of conversations about what is the experience we are going for here? 
what how do we want the player to experience the world right do we want them to feel like the world is this kind of living organic thing to some degree that in which they exist and um if so are they this powerful character where it makes sense for them to have advantages x y and z you know or do we want them to feel more on edge more threatened i mean and just really like iterating as you go through the through the development process and the design process of figuring of calibrating like how to what extent you know is a feature like this going to best serve this specific game and i you know i want um while i think that you know full-on detective vision has its place in you know if you're playing characters like batman broadly speaking i want experiences where the player is more encouraged in some way to to look at the world themselves through their own eyes and draw conclusions based on like things that are there in the world but aren't that aren't necessarily just like spelled out through mm-hmm. a, a, a vision toggle where you can see okay this enemy is just moving this path and oh if i go specifically here i'll be i won't be spotted but rather just like looking at the world as it is as it appears in front of you and and kind of taking risks i mean obviously it's tough because you want you want the game to feel fair for players you want them to understand if i get if i get spotted like why did i get spotted where did i as the player fuck up rather than like oh the game just decided i got seen there that's not really a good experience i i hope that broadly speaking we we start shifting generally toward more experiences where the world is not kind of reduced to a simple set of visual information that is very like just uh, mm-hmm. just straight kind of communicated in very, very straightforward ways, but rather that where we as players have to kind of interpret and decide and approach things based on just our own, the conclusions that we come to. A lot of times this detective vision is used as a supplement to beating people up. It's like it, it's like in service of the violence of the game. And I think that as games become interested in things beyond just committing acts of violence, that more interesting ways to use this will come up. Can you imagine like something like a, like a, a romantic situation in a game where being able to see like what someone's heartbeat is doing in a conversation I, like that could that could kind of be something that's interesting but you want the la kinds... noir like facial clue system yeah something something like vision. that yeah exactly something like that you know when the games become less interested on necessarily just everything being in service of the you know the action of the game that you can have some some more like cool implementations of this mechanic in more interesting ways I think that could be cool, Jared. What do you think? What do you think the industry could do better to to improve the way that uh, Eagle Eye Vision, Buckaroo Vision, is incorporated into games? I feel like if we are being made to interact with Detective Vision in a game, it's because they want you to solve a problem or, or solve a puzzle of some kind. And I would like for games to give me a little bit more benefit of the doubt that I can figure things out like use, using context and, and mm-hmm. what the game is already information. The game has already presented me with rather than just highlighting a big yellow thing on the screen and be like, here, this is what you like, follow this line and then it'll take you to your next thing. Uh, I think that they could trust me as a player a little bit more to be uh, a little smarter about it because then I would be more engaged overall uh, versus just, you know, here's another thing that I have to 
I have to find and and follow the scent, the the smell cloud through the through the bushes. And I think that there's probably more creative ways to do that. For sure. Yeah. Did we get to everything? Did we touch on everything we wanted to touch on? Never. Never. <laughs> it's like we would say, it's like we could probably talk about this for this another is, two hours. This is oh, the definitive, yeah. we've, this is the definitive last word on this topic. Yep. You, know, everyone, you can stop, you can all stop talking about it. We, we've got it, we've got it here for you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume you both just said, yes, we're good. And we'll, E3 uh, we'll is coming on. up. How many, how many games will have Detective Vision? Oh, oh. that's an actually, now I'm going to be thinking about that. Good, there yeah. we go. There's a good game to play. Yeah. <laughs> Well, drink, drink every time a game has detective vision. <laughs> if, if you want to die, uh, um, if you're if you're over twenty one, drink responsibly. Yes, uh, yes de- have yes, a des- yes. designated driver and all that. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Of course, of course. Well, if you, the listener, have any questions or comments about Eagle Vision or Detective Vision or Buckaroo Vision or any of that, you can always reach out to us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at Twitter. No, on Twitter at gbfeature. <laughs> I've been doing this. I've been doing this for too long. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm in Arizona. It is very hot here. And towards the end of these episodes, my brain just Just melts. heat exhaustion. <laughs> just heat. <laughs> I might be suffering from dehydration as we speak. Jared, what, what, did we get any messages? Did, did anyone write to us and say anything nice? Uh, well, Dan Weiland from NetherRealm tweeted at us and he said, just listen to GB Feature with Danish Said. And they dissect the concept of cutscenes in games and make lots of great insights. My only quibble, Quop did have cutscenes of a sort and he posted an image from i guess the mobile version of quop uh which which gave you like a, a newspaper clipping of some kind that mm-hmm. gave you a little context of what was going on in quop oh yeah this was something so, i was not familiar with because i had only ever played quop on the pc and the newspaper clipping is like a you know it says like in big letters like huge failure or something yeah. like that so that was kind of <laughs> ah, like the closest kinda... thing right is like yeah. that, the game i guess sort of had it but yeah, did, apparently yeah, there's a mobile version story. of Quop, which I yep. How do you still call it Quop if it's it's on mobile? I know. Well, because Quop is the is the runner's name, Jared. Of course, of course everybody it is. knows. Everyone knows Quop is the name of the the person <laughs> running the race. Come on, you didn't know this. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, thank thank you, Dan, for setting the record straight on that one. Yeah, thank you. I uh I didn't remember this newspaper clipping. I also didn't recognize the image, so I had to go back and look. And and I I did of course discover this from the mobile version, which I wasn't familiar with. But I also went back and looked at the old Quop that I played, and it does have a story. I, I was mistaken in that episode. I think I had said that Quop doesn't have a story. Uh, it certainly does have a story. It mentions that you're a, a you're this runner named Quop from a small nation who uh, underfunded their athletics programs, and you're the best that they got for the Olympics. <laughs> Good story so, uh, of our time. There we go. Yeah. So yeah, Dan, thank you, uh, thank you for sending that in, Carolyn. Yo, do you, do you have a lot of experience with Quop? You know, I've, I've very little. I, I mean, I, I played it once for maybe five minutes and I'm like, okay, <laughs> I love that this exists. That was delightful. I don't You're know like, if thanks, I Thanks, now I'm angry. Again. Yeah. Yeah, 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 pretty much. <laughs> I had an office job when Quop came out that didn't require my full attention. So <laughs> I've probably logged, if I'm being honest, I've probably logged 20 to 30 hours of Quop. You were a Quop wow. genius. A Quop oh, savant. <laughs> Well, I mean, 20 to 30 hours of playing Quop will get you there. Anyway, that's Quop. <laughs> Quop was fun. If you haven't had a chance to play it, it's still online. Go find it somewhere. I still think it's one of the best examples of just like pure, like the fun comes from the purely from the design of the game itself. And uh, I think Bennett Foddy's a genius. So uh, go check that out. 
Anything else, Jared? That's it for this week. Okay, cool. That's it for the listener emails. Again, you can always send us your own emails at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. That's going to do it for this episode. But before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Carolyn Pettit. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here. This has been a, a real joy having you on the show. Where, where can people find your work and how can they keep up with you? Follow me on Twitter at Carolyn Michelle. And as mentioned, you know, um, check out the Feminist Frequency Radio uh, weekly podcast, which you can find uh, wherever you get uh, your fine, your finest podcasts from. I get mine from Whole Foods, strangely enough. <laughs> Look for us in the podcast aisle. And, and I will go ahead and echo, check out Queer Tropes. It's great. And uh, we will make sure to tweet out links to the podcast and to Queer Tropes and Tropes vs. Women in Games so that everyone awesome. can check that out for themselves. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. I'm at Quap on Twitter. <laughs> I want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. Uh, thank you. Have a thank good you. night, everyone. Later. Happy Bye. birthday. <laughs> it's no one's birthday.